So what I'd like to talk about tonight is um, anatta. That's the area of exploring self and non-self and identification or becoming. The Buddha said that seclusion is happiness for one who has seen and understood the Dharma. Friendliness to all beings is happiness to one who loves nonviolence. Dispassion towards the world is happiness to one who has let go of all sense desires. But freedom from the conceit, I am, this is the greatest happiness of them all. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. So we've been sort of brainwashed by ego. And Sigar Kongtrul says that ego does nothing but create pain and suffering and that Buddhism is about getting unbrainwashed. It's sort of waking up to, from this hypnotic state of subservience to all our ego's demands. And the problem isn't really with um, who or what we are or even defining that, but more liberating ourselves from what we're not and from the identification with what we're not, which is the identification with what the Buddha called the five aggregates or the five skandhas of identification with form or our physical, the physical world, with perception and with feeling and mental formations and consciousness. And we build up a structure from these and see ourselves from that, through that self-concept. And so it leads to a lot of suffering. We like to think that there's someone in there in control, that there's some central headquarters in control. And this is what Pablo Neruda says. Of the many men whom I am, whom we are, I cannot settle on a single one. They are lost to me under the cover of clothing. They have departed for another city. When everything seems to be set to show me off as a man of intelligence, the fool I keep concealed on my person takes over my talk and occupies my mouth. On other occasions, I'm dozing in the midst of people of some distinction. When I summon my courageous self, a coward completely unknown to me swaddles my poor skeleton in a thousand tiny reservations. When a stately home bursts into flames, instead of the fireman I summon, an arsonist bursts on the scene. (laughs) And he is I. There is nothing I can do. What must I do to distinguish myself? How can I put myself together? All the books I read, lionized, dazzling hero figures, brimming with self-assurance, I die with envy of them. And in films where bullets fly on the wind, I'm left in envy of the cowboys, left even admiring the horses. (laughs) But when I call upon my dashing being, out comes the same old lazy self. So I never know just who I am, or how many I am, or who we will be being. I would like to be able to touch a bell and call up my real self, the truly me. Because if I really need my proper self, I mustn't allow myself to disappear. When I'm writing, I'm far away. When I come back, I've already left. I would like to see if the same thing happens to other people. When this problem has been thoroughly explored, I'm going to school myself so well in things that when I try to explain, I shall speak not of self, but of geography. So what's actually interesting from some of the new um, studies in, um, in the brain with MRI is that they've proved that there's no control center. There's no major place in there where I lives. 
there's just lots of areas that light up with different activities and they're all interacting in any one experience and all receiving input put from you know from our outside world and from internally and so it supports this multi pathway this sense that the buddha talked about of a stream of consciousness, of a flow of changing experience where there's nothing solid that we can really hold on to. But we grasp at one element or another of these changing conditions and we, we call it an I. We define ourselves by that and we reduce ourselves in this way. We block the flow. The other thing that they found in these studies of the brain was that when they asked people to describe their personality, um, what kind of person are you, a certain area of the brain lit up whenever they were being self-referential. If they asked them to um, put their attention on other people, a different area of the brain would light up. And they found that in um, people who are really depressed, the area of Um, self-referencing, that same area, is overactive. So that there's a complete sort of fixation around um, self-referencing. And when they um, had someone like Matthew Ricard, who um, has been meditating for many years, his MRI, the area of the brain that was um, relating to other when he would do compassion practice, that was way more developed and the self-referential area was very small in, the, in MRI studies. So it sort of supports this possibility that we can um, be more fluid in, um, in the development of mind and that we can uh, change our fixations, if you want to say it, on self. So the, um, the area, this area of our practice is not a doctrine. The Buddha didn't teach non-self as a doctrine or a belief. It was more an encouragement to examine this whole idea of selfhood, to come to understanding, to not be so confused, and to let go of identification. And as we begin to let go of identification, what's not who we are falls away and our true nature is revealed and then we can live from that place. And as we practice, we start to see the ways that I gets in the way. And for some of us, the I starts to want its own destruction. I used to intend, make an intention in my practice sometimes on retreat um, to not get in my own way because I saw how often I got in the way of experiencing the fullness of whatever was happening. But if I tried to get rid of it, the more fiercely it defended its existence. And I'm sure some of you have had that experience. And then you end up with a kind of a struggle or a battle. And there's a lot of fear sometimes involved in letting go of who we think we are all the ways we've become identified with our personal history. And so we need a way of exploring it skillfully to see how we can become um, a little less stuck and caught. What it really is is simply a shift in perception from this permanent, the way of seeing it as permanent and unchanging and fixed identity to seeing clearly Ramana Maharshi says, the idea of self is like a ghost caused by the play of shadows. And if you look closely, the ghost vanishes. So all that we need to do really is to look closely at each moment of experience. There's that contact with the sense door that Andrea was speaking about so beautifully the other night. And when there's a contact with the sense door, Whatever it is, there's a possibility for I and mine to form. I'm breathing. I hurt. I want. I want, I need, therefore I am. Um, 
when I, about uh, two weeks ago, I guess, um, I came into the hall and I looked at my chair and someone had taken my cushion. And this wasn't a spirit rock cushion, this was my cushion. And so when I sat down, I was aware of all this intense energy that was very unpleasant, that someone had taken my cushion. So first of all, there's the contact with the sense door, the I see no cushion. The perception that, um, and the, the mistaken perception that it's my cushion... <laughs> It's just cushion. Then the feeling tone, very unpleasant. And then the mental formations of who's got my cushion? (laughs) Do I open my eyes and look around the hall to see who has my cushion? Can I stand it till the end of the sitting to find out? And so, of course, being able to be aware of it was very freeing. Just seeing the moment's of suffering that that was causing into making it my cushion. And into, um, you know, then subsequent sitting, I came in early to the hall and aha, I saw my cushion. And then I saw who was sitting on my cushion. (laughs) And subsequently, as he went out onto walking meditation, he became the one who had my cushion. (laughs) And so then every time I would be aware of this person, he became the one who had my cushion. And so it was amazing just to see that. And so to be able to be with that and allow it to notice those moments of identification and not to do anything about it. And then I felt really pleased with myself that I hadn't sort of got carried away and had to leave a note and, you know, do something about it. And then, oh, my practice is so equanimous. (laughs) Just these moments of identification that just, just from that contact of seeing that cushion. And of course what happened was at the end of February, the cushion was returned and the person left and there it was. But it became a big story for about two days. So Buddha Dasa says, mistaken interpretation of the moment of a sense contact as being I or mine is the root cause of suffering in the world. And the cure is one handful of dharma, he said. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I and mine. Nothing. And he called this state that's free of I and mine, shunyata, or voidness or emptiness. Ajahn Sumedho calls it awareness. And it's not a nothingness, the state that's free of I and mine and becoming. It's bright, it's alive, it's knowing, it's open. There's a spaciousness. And the small fixed sense of self and the small fixed sense of other, the one who or whatever it is, is seen through and dissolved. And then there's a sense of spaciousness and interconnection. We can have these moments that are empty of a separate sense of self, often when there's a gap between thoughts. And many of you have experienced this in moments of stillness. There's no grasping, and there's just this sense of peacefulness in that way. And often we don't notice that they're happening because we're so caught up in distraction and in our stories we have this internal monologue going on that's telling us the story of me. And it can drive us crazy. It goes on and on all day, the story of what I'm doing, what I've done, what I'm about to do, what somebody else is doing or about to do. But the moments we're not lost in the story of me and mine and becoming are very peaceful and nourishing and there's a sense of completion to them. Ayakima says, a mindful of I and mine, wisdom and compassion can't enter. But with mindfulness and compassion and wisdom, when they're present, then I and mine begins to dissolve. It's not something that we do, it just happens. 
But it isn't that self is bad or that we're on a project to get rid of it or make ourselves empty. It has a usefulness. There's a functional, there's a functional um, concept. And we are separate <coughs> beings in many ways. There's a, there's a constancy. But we're not a fixed event. But it is a useful um, convention. Um, a medical colleague of mine um, told me about a couple that he was seeing, an elderly couple, and um, they, were, they were quite old in their mid-80s, and the man was developing dementia and became very distressed, and the wife became very distressed, and he wanted a divorce. And he said that she was having an affair. And since she could barely leave the house, we found this hard to believe. But he was adamant that she was having an affair and she was very upset. And he insisted that there was a stranger in the house. And so when um, this doctor went to do the house call, it turned out that when the po- every time the poor man went into the bathroom and saw himself in the mirror, he thought it was a stranger. He had no longer recognized himself. And so when he would go into the bathroom, there was this man that his wife was having an affair with. And so when we begin to lose that sense of who we are, our uniqueness, it's valuable. We need that. Um, And it's not that we lose that. It's more that we get in touch with the absolute reality so that both are possible. We don't have to get rid of that sense of our uniqueness. I remember when I was about 14, I was doing the dishes and I was suddenly overcome with this thought that I was always going to be an Adrian. There was no escape. I would always have this body and this personality. And no matter what fantasies I might have, this was what I was stuck with. And at that time, it was horrifying, (laughs) as I think it is for many teenagers. So there is a constancy, but we're also um, much more fluid and deeply interconnected. The Hua Yen school of Buddhism talks about the jeweled net of Indra, which is this vast cosmic net with a jewel at each interconnection. And each jewel reflects every jewel of the jewel in the net. So that there's that um, interdependency, interconnection everywhere that we're part of. So individuality and interconnection are not contradictory. There's the who-ness, the uniqueness, and the what-ness. So there isn't anything that we need to lose or gain in that way. It's just a shift of perception. You know, it's like those magic eye graphic images where if you just relax your focus, you can see a picture. And when your focus is not relaxed and you can't see anything, it doesn't mean that it's gone away. It's still there. And so the experience of anatta is like that. We can have very deep experiences uh, that we are not all our concepts of self. But at the same time, when we open our eyes, here we are still sitting in the same body. Sometimes people think, if I let go of everything, I'll disappear, or something will happen. But both are um, held in the same Both views are always there. So it's not conventional reality that's the problem. What it is, is our grasping of it and thinking it's the only truth. So we need to know when it's appropriate and when it's not. Obviously, we need it to be able to live in harmony together so that each of you will go back to the same room to sleep in that you've been sleeping in all retreat. You know, there's a usefulness to that. (laughs) A little anxiety in the room in case it doesn't happen. (laughs) So we cling or grasp to this um, 
sense of who we are in two ways. There's appropriation and identification that the Buddha described. This is mine, this I am, this is myself. This is mine is appropriation. That's that seeing something, a sense object, whatever it is, there's the craving, that reaching for it, and the grasping for it when it becomes mine. That's the appropriation that we, when we reach for things and make them mine, the my cushion. And then this I am and this is myself are ways of identification. Identification, the, way, the, the kinds of things that we think we are, the ways we describe ourself, is Sakya Ditti. Carol Wilson spoke beautifully about it a few weeks ago. And there, Buddha described 20 different types of identification. And this I am is the conceit I am, it's called. And that's really the ways we compare ourselves to others or value or um, judge ourselves. Here I am using notes. Other Dharma teachers don't use notes. <laughs> no, a, a, an evaluation. I'm attached to my notes. So that that can be just a statement or it can be an I'm not okay or less than because of that. So the conceit I am is, can be suffering. All of these forms, all three forms, are fed by our particular society. We live in a society where the social structures depend on individualism, consumerism, um, we have to have to be to have enough or to become better than or as good as we're not complete unless we have this is we're not complete unless this is mine so it infers that who we actually are is not okay and that's a very deep belief we define ourselves by who we become it's it's very strong But being a person in this way, as Ajahn Sumedho beautifully describes, is like being a yo-yo. Because if we're doing okay, we measure up, and if we're not, then our sense of self feels bad, is a failure. And so there are these um, eight worldly winds, as they're called, the pairs of gain and loss, fame and disrepute, um, praise and blame success and failure. And it, we're in, like in this yo-yo, constantly swinging between the two. And you've seen that in, a, in one sitting, you can be doing wonderfully and you're great and you're a good meditator and everything's successful. And then you lose it by having aversion to something or someone. And then you no longer have it and you're useless. And it can just go like that. And so many of you come in and some days... Your practice is great and you're great. And other days, things are struggling and there's doubt and difficulty. And we identify with that. It's just painful when we identify with those fluctuations. It's sort of a totally untrustworthy state to put our refuge in. As Ajahn Sumero says, being a person is a totally untrustworthy state to put a refuge in. And he doesn't recommend it. So we can become the enlightened one. <laughs> and it's tricky because you one wants enlightenment, but do we want enlightenment for freedom or to become the enlightened one? <laughs> you know, um, and to notice when that happens. Or if we notice that we're doing that, we become the embarrassed one. <laughs> so what are ways that we can work with it? How can we get to know it Um, so that we can become more at ease with it. One of the ways, as soon as we become aware, there's that sense, the the contact with a sense object, it's possible for me and mine and becoming to arise. So we make the me, the mine, and the becoming the object of our awareness. That's what we start looking for. And when you do that, you can notice that the identification itself is arising and passing. Now I've become 
an idiot. Now I've become wonderful. This is mine. Now it's gone. You know, I just picked up a plate. I put food on it. It's my plate. <laughs> While I'm eating the food, if someone else were to come by and sit down, it would be my plate and not theirs. Once the food's gone and I've stuck it in there, it's no longer my plate. And you can do that with all sorts of things and notice how the I and mine and becoming change. And it's very helpful. What you start to sense is that there's an energetic contraction around mine. Just very slight. Sometimes it's stronger. Sometimes you can notice it more easily. But there's always just this little movement around mine. So see if you can sense it around different experiences. And also, it conditions a feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. If it's pleasant, then there's that craving for it. It becomes, and it becomes mine. There's a becoming. If it's unpleasant and it, we don't like it, then we might become the, the one who's aversive, or who's afraid, or who's angry, depending on what the feeling tone is like. And if we can notice the contraction that comes right after the experience of pleasant or unpleasant, and that's usually when, when it happens, when it's unpleasant or pleasant, so just a little movement. If we can notice that, we can break the cycle of becoming and of suffering. Then it's just the bare experience. It's possible to sort of release it a little. This is what the Buddha said to a disciple of um, Bahia. And um, Bahia um, had actually approached the Buddha um, when the Buddha was going on alms rounds. And he had interrupted the Buddha and demanded that he wanted the teaching that would lead to liberation. And when he first asked, the Buddha said no, he, he was in the middle of alms rounds and this was not the time. And so Bahia asked the traditional three times and he said, Life is short. One doesn't know what will happen. I want the teaching now. And um, so this is what the Buddha said to him. O Bahia, whenever you see a form, let there just be the seeing. Whenever you hear a sound, let there be just the hearing. When you smell an odor, just the smelling. When you taste a flavor, just the tasting. When a thought arises, let it be just a natural phenomena arising in the mind. When you practice like this, there will be no self, no I. And when there is no self, there will be no running that way, no coming this way, and no stopping anywhere. That is the end of dukkha. That itself is nibbana. And apparently, Bahia was instantly achieved enlightenment. And the story goes that shortly after, as he was walking away, he was killed by a runaway cow. (laughs) And so he was right. You never know. (laughs) Life is unexpected. (laughs) So I think he became known as the one who um, attained the fastest (laughs) um, liberation before before death. So anyway, we can, we can notice that birth and death um, around pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We can notice the birth of becoming around it, and then the death or the ceasing of that becoming. We can notice around it around unpleasant emotions as well. We can see when there's grief, and it becomes my grief. When there's despair or depression and loneliness, that contraction that makes it mine. And if we can turn our attention to my with interest, and we can feel the physical tightness, it's very helpful. There's a possibility of loosening. Heather used that mnemonic jam this morning, just a mood. Or jams is the one I like, just a mind state, so whichever. But either way, it's sticky. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's just that noticing 
um, of that beginning of a contraction when we've made it mine. Sometimes there'll be a mental picture associated with it. And it's the contraction against the mental, these difficult states, it's the contraction against them, the unpleasant states, this not wanting them in awareness because they're so, that, that gets in the way. When we do that, we don't, we don't want them in our, our awareness. It's because we're so habitually identified with them. It's hard to allow ourselves to feel them if we believe that they're who we are. When we don't have the belief that they're who we are, it's, and we know that they're impermanent and not self, then it's easier to allow them into awareness. It's so habitual when we're feeling bad to make the connection, I'm bad. Like a little child, when something bad happens, there's the belief that they're bad the misconception that it has to do with me rather than it being something very unpleasant that's coming and going. And as you know, for small children, if what's really bad is very frequent, if they live in an abusive situation where unpleasant is frequently coming over and over, the belief that I'm bad is very entrenched. And the depth of really poor self-worth, it becomes like that's the truth. It's such a deep place. And people find that when they start to practice, how deep the belief that I'm not okay goes because sometimes of our early experiences. Because if it has to do with me, then it infers that it's solid and lasting. But if it's just jam, then it's arising and passing. It's not solid. And it can get eaten or transformed. So we start to see what we're calling me and mine in each moment. And the more we can see it, the less fearful it becomes. The mind states and emotions then are objects. They're not subject. Some years ago, I was sitting along retreat and I had a day where all the mistakes I'd ever made in my life were showing themselves. I'm sure other people have had that experience. You know, it's sort of one of them emerges and then it's like it's on a string. You know, it just pulls all the other ones after it. And it's very unpleasant. And I started to really pay attention to my body experience, to just pay attention. It was very painful. And I saw that... um, I'd been suppressing seeing the mistakes in the past because I didn't want to allow how painful it was. So I started to notice the contraction, the pain in my belly, the nausea, just, the, just feeling awful. And I realized, oh, I've been identified with the one who made these mistakes. And how painful that is to be the one who did those things. And when I saw that, it began to release, and then I was able to allow regret and grief and just fully allow the emotion because it wasn't mine, so it wasn't sticky. So I could fully see what had happened without the adding, without the judging, and that freed it, and then compassion arose. And compassion also for everyone who makes mistakes and believes that that's who they are or for the ways that someone in our life has made a mistake, and we see them as that mistake. And I know I've done that. Someone has said or done something to me, and I hold on to that as who they are. So if we can be present with mindfulness, just seeing, just hearing, just experiencing, without adding and contracting around, it's then it's just pain, just grief, just remorse. And that sense of self and identification start to dissolve. And what's there is compassion and clear seeing. And we see that they're just mind states that arise out of causes and conditions. I thought, if I've done something wrong, I should be punished. You know, that's the kind of um, background that many of us come from, that we're supposed to take it personally. Um, This is from Ajahn Anando. 
He says, we put a lot of energy into holding on to our woes and concerns and dreadful memories, and we carry them around like a rotting corpse wrapped around our necks. It's as if you walk into a room and people say, would you mind, please, it stinks. And you say, but this is mine. It's my essential nature. (laughs) And it's a kind of weird ego twist in the West. Um, Because it isn't that we love ourselves too much, but that we have a negative preoccupation with ourselves. In a way, rather than cherishing ourselves, we, we tend to hate ourselves, many of us in the West. Self-degradation sounds like we don't have self-importance, doesn't it? You know, it sounds like it, it's sort of humble, self-degradation. But in reality, if we weren't holding so tightly to ourselves, there would be no reason to feel such aversion. If we weren't holding on to it as an identity, we wouldn't have such an aversion to it. Pema Chodron said, we're still full of ourselves, but we're full of ourselves as a negative thing. So there's some kind of belief that we're fundamentally wrong. There's something fundamentally wrong with us. And through our practice, we find out that there's nothing fundamentally wrong. It's just mind states. It's just... Ideas, it's like coats, cloaks that we put on, things that we wear, like the rotting corpse around the neck. Um, I'm just reminded of um, a cartoon of of a monk, I think it's from a, a Japanese magazine, of a monk walking across the sand with this big sack on his back and his feet are sinking really heavily into the sand. He looks really miserable. And on the sack is written, me, mine. (laughs) So if we can just put our personal histories down, it's a lot lighter. So you might explore that as you're walking around sometimes, just to notice um, if you're carrying your personal history and what it might be like to just be with the experience of yourself in this moment. And notice whether it feels lighter or heavier. So often we don't notice the judging until after we've started to feel bad. Sometimes we have that experience. We're feeling really unpleasant and we don't know what's going on before we realize we've been judging ourselves or we've been having negative opinions of ourselves. And judging serves to keep the identification or the selfness in place. It, it sort of serves as a, like a, a sticky thing that holds the identification of the negative self-image in place. And if we can see it as just harshness arising and also not who we are, Like we don't have to go, oh God, I'm judging. This is just a fit of judging. Judging arising. We can also see that if we always become the one who made a mistake or got it wrong or failed in some way, that leads to having to get it right. The desire to become the one who gets it right. And that's painful too because it's endless and it can apply to whatever we're doing, to our work, our relationships, our practice here. And so much anxiety gets caught up in trying to get it right. I was um, practicing once and I was quite still and I sort of had this awareness and I saw this getting it right in the center of my awareness. And I saw that it was blocking me from the truth. And compassion arose. I saw how it was ready, this getting right, to attach to anything that arose in my experience. And I got very anxious, thought, how am I going to get rid of it? I have to get rid of this having to get it right. Please may I be free of having to get it right. That's what I was saying to myself. But then I suddenly saw that, oh, I've identified with getting it right. It's just a mind state. 
it just arises and passes. And it was um, as though the getting it right would arise and then the identification with it would arise. And it was like dolphins in the sea of awareness. Here was a getting it right moment. Here was identification following it. And then that would dissolve. And moment after moment, they would arise and dissolve. Identification, selfing, reaction to that, all dissolving. And I began to see how each self arises and then dissolve. And it became pointless to identify with it because it's gone so quickly. And the next moment, some other self arises, just like Pablo Neruda. And it was very freeing. What a relief before the next one arises <laughs> to be identified with. That was in a concentrated state. And usually it happens so fast we don't notice the birth and death of ego in that way. Usually we just note thinking. Or else maybe we're aware of a contraction, or as I said before, an unpleasant feeling. So it helps to be curious, to see how the block happens. And sometimes it helps to just have this gentle thought, who's experiencing this? Who's doing this? Who's it happening to? And it brings us closer to our true nature, and we start to see what the barriers are. And mindfulness dissolves the barriers. In my case, in that t- at that point, getting it right was the barrier. And it isn't that we're trying to, by asking that, we're trying to leap over the self or get beyond the self or get to some pure place. It's more going straight to it. What's the direct experience in this moment? When I was sitting at the Forest Refuge a couple of years ago with some of the teachers, um, at different points in time, different teachers would leave. And one of the teachers wrote a beautiful note and stuck it on the board. And it was a poem. And at the end of it, she wrote, Who's standing here? And I read it, and it was, Oh, there's just standing here. Oh, there's just reading. It was wonderful. And then, um, there's just experiencing. And then, oh, I'm having this experience. (laughs) I'm having these insights and seeing the self-form and identifying it. Oh, who's holding on? Who's just, just holding on, just resisting? And in the, sometimes in the stillness and in these gaps, we can see when the thoughts stop, just this space, there's a space, this sense of awareness that is free from I and mine. And when we're not identified in that way, then it's just a getting it right moment, a holding it on, a holding on moment, a wanting to fix it moment. Or maybe if our mind's busy, then it's a chatty narrating moment. That's all. Or maybe it's a fear of loss of control moment. If they're all just coming and going. And when we try and stop the flow by identifying with it, then we get caught in the suffering. When we're not judging, it starts to dissolve. And sometimes the sense of self is arising and dissolving, and then there's just this spaciousness. And sometimes I've had the experiences of, oh, I attach to the spaciousness. That becomes mine. It's my awareness. And then there's the realization, oh, there's no I in awareness. And then there's fear. <laughs> and for some t- sometimes what happens is it's, there's an urge to become somebody. There's an urge to attach to something. Because when the sense of self starts to break up, it's frightening. Because everything that we've regarded as solid and real starts to be um, shaky starts to fall apart a bit. But that which is aware of that, the knowing of that, is at peace. It's just a moment of shakiness. Don Juan says, a spiritual warrior doesn't need a personal history. One day, he or she finds it no longer necessary and just drops it. 
the art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being with the wonder of being. Both of those. So when we don't take the unfolding so personally, we can be without anxiety about imperfection. And the Buddha called to be without anxiety about imperfection, true happiness. Just to be at ease with however it is. So you might think that um, having all these insights leads to complete freedom. But it's the beginning of a process. As Hafiz says, it's always a danger to aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the 10,000 idiots who so long ruled and lived inside have all packed their bags and skipped town or died. It's very humbling. Because sometimes we can get a sense of excitement. They've gone. I'm free. (laughs) I was um, having one of those experiences and um, it became, oh, this is my story. And I was doing walking meditation before an interview rehearsing my story when I had a visual image of this um, big inflated chicken. You know, I'm so great, I'm so great, (laughs) telling my story. And so I went, oh no, I'm identified, this is terrible. And then all of a sudden, I blew up the chicken. (laughs) And then this sort of voice says, that wasn't very nice, was it? The poor chicken. Because it was just identification arising and passing. <laughs> a poor thing. <laughs> so it's a moment of freedom, a moment of selfing, no big deal. <laughs> and there's no one it's happening to. And that's a relief to take refuge in awareness rather than taking refuge in changing conditions. The truth is universal. It's not my truth. It's not, aren't I great, but isn't this great? It's greatness. It's wonder. It's amazing. Specialness is very tricky. That's that conceit, I am. We want to be special or good enough. The enlightened one, the more seen. I remember once some some time ago when James was doing that exercise he does, I think, of, you know, what is it you really want? Or what is it? Something like that that he says. And I was teaching with him and he did it. And I was sitting there and sort of, you know, what do I really want? Oh, I want everyone to be awake or something. And then what arose was, I want to be seen. I want to be the most seen. (laughs) It's very embarrassing. But it's just like this, I want to be seen is something that's very deep. Um, in us, this wanting to be enough. And as I stayed with it, I saw that somehow the ego is afraid that if we're not seen, if I wasn't seen, I didn't exist. There was something very core, existential about that. If I'm not seen, I don't exist. That's one part of it. And the other part of it is there's a yearning to be seen and accepted just as we are. For many of us, we're seen and accepted for what we become, for the clothes, for the identities that we put on. But we know inside us that that's not okay, that's never going to work. So we yearn to be seen as we actually are. And it's really a movement towards connecting with our true nature, towards connecting with love and compassion. That movement for awareness for connection in that way. This is um, from Zigar uh, Kuntral. He says, it comes down to this. If we renounce ego's sense of specialness, we renounce all the ways that ego lays claim to us. 
if we don't renounce specialness, all of our life's decisions will be made by ego. Ego will be our guide on the path. Humility is essential to this process. It helps us see ourselves as a beginner. We'll always have the openness to look and through looking to renounce self-importance and ensure well-being. To connect with who we actually are, all of us. So I'd like to finish um, with this little piece from Sharon Salzberg, who's describing the third noble truth. As the wisdom that understands fully the nature of life. As liberation from distorted concepts of who we think we are, by seeing clearly who we actually are. As boundless, unimpeded love for ourselves and all others without exception. As experience of that which lies beyond our conditioning, that which frees us from suffering. By seeing clearly who we actually are as boundless, unimpeded love for ourselves and all others without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.